Thank you for listening to CFB Talks Digital Assets. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. It is not intended, nor should it be considered an invitation or inducement to buy or sell any of the underlying instruments cited, including, but not limited to, crypto assets, financial instruments, or any instruments that reference any index provided by CF Benchmarks Limited. This recording is not intended to persuade or incite you to buy or sell a security or securities noted within. Any commentary, interviews, and discussions are opinions only and should not be considered a personalized recommendation. Please contact your financial advisor or professional before making any investment decision. Some of the underlying instruments cited within this recording may be restricted to certain customer categories in certain jurisdictions. You're listening to CFB Talks Digital Assets, the home of informed conversation about crypto for institutions building the future of finance, presented by CF Benchmarks. I'm Ken O'Delaga, Head of Content, and I'm joined by Gabe Selby, our Lead Research Analyst. Hey everybody, and thank you for joining us for another episode of CFB Talks Digital Assets. I think you're going to be particularly pleased uh, that you lent us your ears uh, today because our guest is a senior macro strategist at Bloomberg, Mike McGlone. Now, Mike McGlone is particularly distinguished because um, obviously having been a uh, macroeconomic strategist at Bloomberg for a number of years, he's also in recent years uh, become one of the preeminent analysts of cryptocurrencies and digital assets for uh, the large um, financial news provider. So obviously he covers the intersection of traditional finance, macroeconomics, and cryptocurrencies, and a lot of other things. So, Mike, we are so stoked to have you. Welcome aboard. Thank you, Ken. I'm excited to be on. I am kind of humbled by that um, intro, but I'll do my best to live up to it. And of course, um, our in-house accredited investment analyst um, with a cryptocurrency tilt, Gabe Selby, is also with us here. Hi, Gabe. Hey, everybody. Super excited to have Mike on the podcast. Longtime follower of his research and his content and frequent listener of the weekly markets call that uh, Bloomberg Economics hosts that Mike joins usually on a weekly basis. And that's always good to finally have, you know, to host someone like this on our podcast. So it's a big moment for us. And uh, yeah, really excited to uh, to get on with the show. So Mike, because you're a well-known strategist, analyst, and voice on financial markets, but traditional financial markets, if you will, uh, particularly maybe commodities and equities. What was your on-ramp from, for, from a strategic um, analytical perspective, if you like, or maybe a personal investment perspective? Um, you've clearly decided that they do have some legitimacy and use and utility. What sort of thought process led you to that conclusion that um, you know, this is something that we should all be involved in and be aware of going into the future? I am now... Um quote-unquote macro strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. I came on as a commodity strategist about six years ago. And I mean, I just saw this space. I'm like, I could not write about this space. And that was, I initially started in 2017, pointing out how silly, stupid, and bearish I was. Um, and that's just classic market guy. I'm like, all right, this is pretty, you know, I'm going to write. And of course, started out that way. And, and I saw the technology. I always believed in technology, but there's certain things where, you're supposed to buy and certain times you're supposed to just be a tactical seller. And that was the case. So I did not make a lot of friends until in the space until 2018, I started getting bullish. But I initially was introduced to it by my eldest son about 10 years ago. And just like anybody else, I've, you know, there's no zealot like a convert. I initially, that's eh, silly and internet money. 
But then you dig in. And as a commodity crypto, a commodity macro guy, I look at the bottom line for me was, I mean, I used to be in the trading pits in Chicago, and I remember being in the pits, and they could shut down any time. You had to work night sessions. The only time you can transact when the pits are open, but the ability to be able to transact this, these assets, um, particularly Bitcoin, 24-7 on your phone globally without anybody in between, particularly in Bitcoin, without anybody's, you know, no one's liability, no one's pride. That, to me, is just a revolution. And it's a lesson I learned working in the trading pits that, poof, became gone rapidly because of technologies. Don't underestimate the rapid, rapidly advancing technology. Yes, yeah, some of it is silly and wrong. But when it comes to global money becoming kind of like email, I just grabbed onto it like, and I'll end with this, what really captured me the last few years with the top two, Bitcoin and Ethereum, is I can, as a commodity guy, I can see definable diminishing supply and increasing adoption and demand. That macro, that's got to change in the big picture prices must go up over time and i'm expected adoption more is more likely to continue to increase because i see the things that are happening so that's that's the bottom line for me it's um don't underestimate to me i think that's the sense i get particularly here in miami is most of the astute educated investors and people in the world realize okay i'm better off um not taking the risk of falling behind this rapidly advancing technology (laughs) yeah Better off not taking not taking the risk of not falling behind. I love the way you put that. Hey, Gabe, do you want to come in here at all? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a few things that you really kind of shine some light on that I think are pretty cool. One is that 24-7 access, the decentralized, you're fully autonomous. There's no people that are operating, you know, this 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 currency, this blockchain. So it's all automated. We're kind of like the traditional practitioners, you know, looking to Bitcoin you know, on a Sunday night or a Saturday night, even when futures are closed on the CME, how, how does this kind of translate over to traditional markets? So Bitcoin has become the world's most fluid, maybe fluent, it's hard to pick out the exact word, 24-7 trading vehicle slash leading indicator, bar none. There's nothing that's even close. And that really became... Um, clear beginning of last year when the fastest horse in the race started trickling down and everything followed. Now it happened again this year when the fastest horses went and the race went back up, everything followed. Now it's going back down. And you see that it's mostly Saturday because markets open on Sunday evening. Some markets are open on Sunday, but Saturdays um, it's, you, you can see what's trading. And um, that is, uh, it's just so it's significant. So I, um, I looked at that as um, that was kind of a milestone last year. The key thing that's happening right now to put that in context is that's part of the reason I'm short-term bearish Bitcoin because if I'm I'm bearish everything, <laughs> it's just like because the Fed's tightening. We noticed. Well, yeah. it's like it's not complicated. <laughs> and if you're bullish, I'm gonna give me a reason. Or did you notice that the Fed is tightening the highest rate rate um, schedule ever? And it, had an ink, we had an inkling, yeah. Yeah, so we get inkling. So I'm like, okay, what's the fastest horse in the race? So. Um, and that's already playing out again right now. So, you know, we're going to, we're taping this on, uh, on March 9th and we're going to play it a little bit later, but Bitcoin has peaked around 25,000. That was an appropriate level. I think there's a good reason for it to still make a new low, unfortunately, but that's a shorter term trade within the macroeconomic rising tide. And the key thing is right now, the whole tide's going out. And if you don't believe me, ask Jerome Powell, he's raising rates. Sure, sure. Let's um, let's uh, drill down a little bit on those short-term uh, factors before we move on to the sort of broader structural uh, stuff, uh, Mike. 
I think you wrote earlier this month, I mean, the month is just a few days old still, but maybe really early this month, you wrote that Bitcoin needed to breach $25,000 for global risk appetite to re return. So that, that seems to be some, have some resonance in, in what you just said about, you know, uh, being the fastest horse in the race. So that's a high risk thing I like to do sometimes as a one hand in economist is sometimes when you have an axe to grind, you got to just say it. And then my risk is I get stopped out, I'm wrong, and McGlone's your idiot. But, you know, I've heard that before, but there's certain times I, I look at it as um, having spent so much of my career being on the phones with clients and, or running institutional money. There's certain times you want to be overweight long, and there's certain times you want to maybe look at protecting your investments. You now, that risk's being um, tactical, but, I, you know, I just said, okay, this is a risk I got to take. So I look at it, if I was structuring positions for clients, I'd be looking at, like, put ratio spread, I'd be buying, you know, I would have been saying, okay, let's look at a 25 strike, 25,000 strike versus a 15 strike and maybe ratio that a little bit because you want to probably start getting long around 15,000 if it gets here again. And you kind of want to be short around 25,000. Now that's within the context of what I do at Bloomberg. I can't give investment advice. I don't, but I can say this is where markets are going, where I think they're going and why. So that to me is it. And so that was kind of a veiled way of saying you're supposed to be short. <laughs> and if, if it goes up, then you know who to blame. That means everything's going up. And to me, it's starting to trickle down that way. Stock market's rolling over. Copper's rolling over. Crude oil's already heading lower. Um, bond yields actually might be bottoming in the U.S. and, and, and are peaking and heading the other way. And that's to me part of this greatest macroeconomic reset that's my base case just getting started and bitcoin has been one and cryptos have been one of the leading indicators for that so when i look at it like you look at the big rally we had in cryptos to the peak in 2021 that was massively silly speculation i thought bitcoin would get to 100,000, but ethereum did the equivalent but now it's 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 dumping and there's a reason why bitcoin didn't a lot of it was in um Chinese kicking out the miners. But now that's happening. Every big boom and bust in history have pumped up in liquidity and then you dump on that liquidity. We're in the early days of doing that. And one of the best leading indicators of massive speculation in liquidity was cryptos. I mean, things like Shiba Inu and Dogecoin are just, were just silly speculation. And so those things kind of got to go away. But then you have the real technology that you get from railroads and things like when they first came out in airplanes and, and internet, that real technology that matters. Um, and that's just going to be a while. So to me, this is part of that classic historical patterns of pumps then dumps on the back of liquidity. Crypto is the fastest horse on their way down. Crypto is on the way up, leading on the way down. And the stage we're in right now is down. And that's why I like to say to people, I fully expect the stock market to go lower. So because I expect that, I can't expect, I have to kind of expect similar in cryptos. And I don't think this whole thing is going to end until we have a pretty typical trough similar to we had in 2009 when most analysts, most strategists give up and say, oh, it's the, we're getting a worse recession and there's going to be more job losses and the Fed can't ease enough to help us. We got to get to that point because we're still at the point right now. People are still calling for a soft landing. It's, it's the classic case of don't fight the Fed. And the fact that we started saying that over a year ago, and we're still saying it now, and I've never seen it this significant in my lifetime when you have things like crude oil down 30% on a one-year basis and the Fed is still tightening. That's basically really never happened. Maybe a little bit in the 70s, but that was a long time ago. The limbo state kind of presents itself when you look at the yield curve. I think with the two tens inverting past 100 basis points recently, 
that's telling me that the longer end of the yield curve, the the, the rates further out are not buying into you know the the Fed keeping rates out there for longer. And I think they're going to eventually maybe see some sort of pivot and some sort of reversion back down. So I think we're going to be waiting for more data as everyone does, you know, and we're going to have to just kind of wait and see. But I think Mike's kind of right. And it's interesting to me that we've seen such a wide gap in outperformance of the crypto market when we compare it to traditional asset classes like equities. When we look at the broader crypto market, which we can measure with our CF broad cap uh, diversified market index, it still kind of has kind of an edge, you know, when you compare it to these traditional asset classes, despite the fact that we've seen this shift in a more uh, structurally hawkish Fed. So I'd, I'd be kind of curious to get Mike's take on this. Um, it's a baby um, and the baby's growing up and you fully expect that baby to grow much faster than a mature market like um equities, bonds, stocks, commodities, you know, the whole space, any other asset, even else like gold. Um, the key thing is babies are volatile. And um, what you described, Gabe, I think is what you fully expect when the tide starts rising, and it's not, I mean, the global macroeconomic tide, that cryptos will go back to their propensity to outperform like barely a trillion, what are global equities, about 100 trillion. So the key point, I think, from that is, that um, things like the inverted yield curve, yes, I believe it completely. The, you look at the probability of a recession from the yield curve based on the Cleveland Fed's measure. It's at the highest level since 1982. Okay, so good luck fading that one. Um, but it, it's, to me, it's not that. It's that simple, basic stuff. It's the macroeconomic platform that got us here. So we just had this 100-year plague pandemic. We, right before that, we had this in this country. We had this, um, you know, um, cheerleader-in-chief of the stock market president. And then we get the Russia, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a hot war going on that spiked um, commodity prices and baited the Fed in inflation and to tighten even more. So here's the scenario I expect, that inflation is going to fall at the fastest pace in history. It already is. Um, and it's going to go down as fast as money supply in the U.S. went up. Money supply in the U.S. on a year-over-year basis went to 26%, the highest ever. And right now, it's about minus 2% on a year-over-year basis, the lowest ever. So to be able to say that on it when you have a database going back almost 60 years is significant. So to expect to not expect reciprocal reversion in markets is just silly. So things like soft landings are just silly. The way you get a soft landing, the only time to start talking about a soft landing is about six months after the last tightening. We're still, we're still tightening. So I just, remember that's one thing we have to do here and I do is handling institu institutional clients is getting past the noise of the talking heads. And I'm one of them. I mean, I, they interview me all the time. So just pointing out the facts is what's important. And that is, I published on um, the housing market. The US housing market is peaking from the highest ratio to new homes under construction versus sales ever. You can go back to 74 for that. That means it's a classic bear market stage. Like when people point out there's a lot of constructions in the city, construction cranes, that's usually a bad sign because it takes five to seven years to get those cranes there. Just the way life works. Last year, people pointed to me how, oh, low crude oil inventories were, were and the market's going to go higher. I mean, so that's a very, very bearish statement. That's how markets work. Inventories bottom when prices peak. This is what I'm expecting going forward. So by the time we, we hit the tape on this, I don't know how much lower the equity market's going to be, but I fully expect that S&P 500, which has been hovering around 4,000, to go to 3,000. It's not profound in a normal U.S. recession, but it's very profound for people who for the last 10 years have got overweight equities. I'll add one little ma more macro in there. We have the case of the boomers about average price is 70. And when a 
and they got overweight equities because they couldn't help it because markets made them overweight. But now you can buy a two-year note in the U.S. and get 5%. To me, what rational human being on the planet is not doing that? I think that's a really good point. And I, th- I think what there's an ex- there's already an acronym. We, we had TINA. There is no alternative. And now I think... There is. Now. <laughs> is it Terra? Is it there is... Uh, or what, 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 are we, what are we using now, you know, for our catchphrase or there is an alternative? I think the catchphrase is just by U.S. government to your notes. <laughs> yeah. So if we're talking about inflation and we have, you know, I think, you know, one of the top experts in commodities with us today, I think, you know, we could, we could look back and see how the inflation uh, environment kind of started when we saw these, you know, supply shocks on the good side. That's starting to reverse. We're seeing you know, commodities have kind of all round trip back down. As you've highlighted in your outlooks, you know, you're bearish on all these things. Um, do you think it's just going to be led by the good sector that's going to eventually kind of spill over into the services sector, which has been very sticky and that's been a major concern? That's why I like to um, separate the forest from the trees. I'm a forest guy. So here's a simple fact. Um, PPI, the lowest annual PPI ever was minus 6.9% in July of 2009. Why was that? Because crude oil peaked in July of 2008. <laughs> so what did crude oil peak? Um, and so that's what's going to happen. So on July 13th of this year, we will be measuring PPI from its peak and about from when crude oil is high. And I fully expect that number to be negative. That's called deflation. Now, there's a very high correlation between PPI and CPI and then everything else that people look for inflation. And they use things like overs, owner's equivalent rent. You can dig in all the details you want, but they're all based on one basic thing. Too much money pumped it. Too much money. The money is going away at the rapidest pace and ever. And it's when you take markets to levels that are too high, it's that mean reversion that can seem like a crash. So that to me is where we are in the macro. And that's why I have to point out this year. In fact, I was at a conference last year where I met Sam Bankman-Fried and where people were asking me, Mike, why are you writing so much about crude oil and less about um, crude, about uh, Bitcoin? Because I'm like, on a global scale, Bitcoin's a rounding error. It's great. It sounds good, but it's the macro that matters now. And that is... I fully expect WTI crude oil to go back to about $40 a barrel. And I've been saying that for way too long. I've been wrong. But guess what? Natural gas has already done the actual equivalent in the U.S. It's gone back to its cost of production, which is around two. Now, it's bounced a little bit, but that's what it's supposed to do. It was at 10 last year. To me, my question is, what stops this? The Fed's still tightening in the consensus. This is the key thing I love. Institutions get this. is When you hear a consensus, run away. Because it usually means it's 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 usually means it's priced in. The consensus last year was crude oil is going to 150 or 130, and I'm like, what do you n- not learn about? You're never supposed to buy commodities after they go up. <laughs> it's just a lesson. If they go up a lot, you're supposed to sell them. It's just the way they work because they they create their own. Just like a lot of assets, they they're their own enemies. They, they're completely autocorrelated. They shut off demand instantly. They bring on supply, and then of course they create global recessions. That's where we're headed. We're just early days, and the key thing that's different this time that's never happened in my lifetime is we still have the Federal Reserve tightening based on a 12-month measure of inflation and unemployment that almost always bottoms. And when it does, to, from very low levels, we have a 100% correlation with recessions in the U.S., and we have some major factors pointing out the Fed's just tightening until we get unemployment to rise, which means a virtually guaranteed recession, which means a typical correction in the equity market, 50%, and the crude oil is more likely to go to $40 a barrel, which is about the U.S. cost of production, which, by the way, is the world's largest producer and net exporter, and 10 years ago was the world's largest consumer. That's the key thing I think people are missing is how the world has changed 
because of rapidly advancing technology, which pressures inflation. So when we try to tie this back into Bitcoin and crypto, you know, I think it's a very good to point out the supply demand dynamics that we typically see in commodities, which and one of the things that you just talked about was, I, I think, something that's called the supply elasticity effect, where whenever you see prices really rally, that typically brings in more production and that typically, you know, brings prices back down. So with crypto, you know, you do have a little bit of a different animal. If we consider, you know, Bitcoin a commodity, it's 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 got this diminishing supply dynamic. And and ever since I would say, you know, if we look at the chart and we track the correlation between crypto and and, and traditional equities, back in March 2020, we saw that relationship really become positively linked. Do we get to a point going forward in this scenario where we go into a global recession? Given the differences between Bitcoin and other traditional commodities, where we might see a less of a linkage between Bitcoin and equities, kind of like how it was before, you know, uh, the pandemic, when things kind of flipped and became just a more levered risky asset bet. Good question. It's it's the agent stage of its maturation process. So Bitcoin is more highly correlated to the equity market, depending on which measure you look mostly um, in history, certainly more recently, and because it's still a risk asset. So I fully expect it's going to be trading and become more like digital gold. It is, but it's still massively speculative and trade might like gold in long bonds, U.S. Treasury long bonds. So I think some of the best performing assets this year will be U.S. Treasury long bonds, gold, um, and Bitcoin's still kind of stuck in the middle, but eventually it'll come there. The key difference is it's money. It's not a commodity, but it's is it money? But it's it's a store of value. Global collateral, I think, is a better way to look at it. So I, being in Miami has been great because here, you know, South American influence, people get what it's like to, have, to be exposed to melting currencies. <laughs> and so but the key thing, I mean, I think Bitcoin is great in that stage, but I can't talk about it sometimes without mentioning the key thing that's happening in this space that most I find most institutional investors don't get. And that is the most widely trade created cryptos is not Bitcoin and it's not Ethereum, it's crypto dollars. And this is something that struck me in 2018. I was in Hong Kong. I was pointing out the bear market and I was still bearish. And I pointed out, but there's one bull market and that was the market cap of Tether. Now, yes, Tether is very controversial, but it's being on the, in Hong Kong and getting the sense of the mainland this and mainland that. And the quote I got and learn, sometimes it's best to learn things over drinks and alcohol. And that was that Mike, People here can get access to the dollar on their phone. People in any place in the world, they've never been able to do that. And Tether was only one. Now there's a dozen of them. And to me, that's the key thing. Americans, regulators and legislators and leaders haven't figured it out yet, but they will. As Churchill says, they'll exhaust all options before finding the right solutions, something like that. Um, and so now we're kind of in that stage, we're kind of messing up a little with regulation, but we'll figure it out that you don't want to mess up a technology that brings your currency, that uses your currency as a base layer. And to me, that's the bottom line. Now, Bitcoin is more like gold and Ethereum helps make possible the tokenization of all assets. It's just the first and main one right now is the dollars. A question I like to ask is what stops the tokenization of all assets? Ask the people on the LME who are trading nickel. There's a better way to do that. Tokenization is, is the way to do it. Mm. Can I just um, change things up uh, just a little bit? Like yourself, um, CF Benchmarks is, um, you know, obviously predicated on the legitimacy of cryptocurrencies and digital assets in general as legitimate assets, right? But what we, what we are, our, our main purposes, our main uh, modus operandi is basically uh, we try to 
bring about the adequacy of the information. So that is uh, the information on transactions, volumes, and also, of course, on free-floating supply. What I want to get into is basically what is your view on the adequacy of information and, I suppose, by default, the available market integrity of the cryptocurrency market is quite sparse in terms of what you can actually point to and say, yes, this is real, this is reliable, this is accurate. How much does that hinder or factor into essentially the adoption and I suppose the eventual accumulation of uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general? How much of a problem is it still um, today? I think, Ken, the premise of your question is spot on. So let's focus on a little bit of healthy competition. So CF Benchmarks is profound in this space for launching crypto indices, right? And the goal is to have, bottom line, I don't see any type of longer term apex in or plateau in broad crypto prices until there's a widely disseminated ETFs to track indices, physically backed indices of cryptos like yours or ours. So um, this is what I'm pointing out in a good way. So I, if one of the first things I, when I came to Bloomberg um, was in 2017, I approached index teams. We have to have an index in this space. Now they did it with Galaxy. So we have the Bloomberg Galaxy Crypto Index. But to me, that's where, let's look at our US regulator. If they properly want to help um, protect investors, then you need to approve an ETF for products that track a broad-based indices. Don't pick winners like Bitcoin. What if Bitcoin gets replaced by Ethereum or something else? I, I don't know, but it's an index. It's a proper way that I think virtually every institution on the planet, sovereign wealth fund, uh, family office, uh, pension funds, endowments, that's the way to go. And they're not there yet. We're, even, we're so far away. So they're using other methods. They got some retail got stuck using firms like FTX. But to me, that's where it's going. And it's so early days. So to me, hopefully part of what's happening right now with this grayscale Bitcoin trust litigation with the SEC in this country will help prove to the SEC on wrap that you need to regulate properly means focus on indices. Um, products that track indices, indice, uh, ETFs that track indices. So the index can, that's why I always like to look at the markets on macro. Um, so to me, it's going there. It's a question of time. And maybe you'll be the first firm to have a, and maybe outside of the US, but widely tracked ETFs that track your index. You can get exposure to the top 5, 10, 20 cryptos and let the index, proper management of index, have you exposure to the market. And that's what I think institutions want. Sure. So, I mean, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to, you know, the follow on. So tokenization, um, assuming it does gather pace in the next um, year, a couple of years, and uh, we see some high profile examples that are success stories. Um, it could be anywhere, treasuries, it could be something else. Does that feed into the minds of potential users, adoptees, both institutional and, you know, maybe the wider sort of retail class, if you want to put it that way? And does that actually improve the base case for digital assets in general, particularly maybe if you like uh, Bitcoin and Ether? Oh, yeah. I look at it, Ken, as, some, as similar to what futures did to financialization of all assets, what ETFs did to investing. The key question when you were saying that, I thought to myself, what stops this? Sure, regulation might push back in the short term, but then there'll be other countries that say, okay, well, the U.S. are being idiots in this space. We'll just jump on. We'll get all that money. And it's just the, the competition. That's the key thing, the benefit we have in the states right now. So this competition between states is overwhelming. Why is everybody coming to the red states like Florida and leaving the blue states like Connecticut, where I came from? And New York, because the tax man, it's just over and regulation. So to me, that's the thing. It's, it's just a better way to do it. 
It's overwhelming, and people, I think, are adopting to the technology now because it's moving so fast. And that's a key thing I get virtually every place I go to. I go to conferences. I speak to people out in the Midwest Corn Belt. I was at a the Greenwich Economic Forum this week in Miami, <laughs> second annual. And everybody says kind of the same thing. The technology is moving so fast, I can't keep up. But it's more so the acknowledgement that I need to understand and know it versus the pushback. So that's where you're getting that, you know, obviously from regulators and legislators. But this is, again, from my macro standpoint, as I look at the macro and I see what happened with that LME and that nickel contract. And I look at it like you got to be sitting at the LME and thinking, well, people are finding better ways to trade what we've got made a, a living on for 200 years. We better catch up. Yeah. I mean, just just very quickly talking about that pushback, uh, Mike, um, regulation, I mean, to an extent, I mean... I wouldn't say it's a totally random variable and that nothing is really, but um, it does seem at times, particularly when it comes to crypto, digital assets in general, that, you know, maybe the industry feels this is banging its head against a brick wall with the regulators, with the, you know, the official class, trying to get them on the same page. How much of a risk is it overall? Well, right now we're in kind of a negative phase of that since FTX collapsed, particularly in the U.S. U.S. was, we had things like the Lummis Gilbren bill, which focused on stable coins. And um, I call them crypto dollars because over 98% of them are dollars. Why not call them what they are, like euro dollars? Uh, so we're in a bit of a, a backstep on that. But you look at things like here in the U.S., one benefit we have is um, Mr. Gensler has been one of the main persons at the SEC um, uh, and he only has two years left. So it's like, if it's not working out, he's gone. It's like, what happened with, we have presidents we don't like, they're gone. They got four years, they're out. I mean, that's one of the benefits of our system. And so I think short term, it might be rough, but the key thing that a lot of people are watching right now is this case with um, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust um, in the litigation with the SEC. And our my colleague, Elliot Stein, initially thought they would not do well. Now he thinks there's a chance, 70% chance they're going to get favorable favorable um, regulation. And there's precedent for that. In Canada, um, one of the ETF providers sued the regulator, won, and now we have a lot of Canadian Bitcoin ETFs. So um, it's just the classic example of incumbents um, being pushed behind and um, the new guard, new tech, rapidly advancing technology pushing ahead. And the key thing I find especially in this space, there's just so many really smart, motivated people that see what's going on like I do. And I'm kind of not worried about it. I'm just, you got to fight. You got to go for it. You just got to be prepared for the bumps in the road that make me make you lose your hair. And I think you and I can have done that well. Gabe, I hope you're okay there. No, absolutely. One more thing um, on that, Mike, and then Gabe, please do jump back in. Um, you know, I look at um, Gary Gensler and I just basically, I get so much cognitive dissonance because I just, you know, I'm not really sure if I know how to read the guy and his stance, really. He's a guy who used to teach a blockchain class or whatever it was. Um, you know, he's clearly recognizes the um, benefits, the potential benefits of cryptocurrencies. And, you know, he understands that, um, you know, the underpinnings are legitimate and also uh, on strong foundations. But then we look at the SEC's behavior and its inconsistency and its um, selective prosecutions and its strategizing in terms of who it goes for. I do say, you know, he's got two years left. If he doesn't, you know, if he doesn't sort of make it, then he's gone. But is that really what it's going to take? Or is there a point that it's sort of like, from his point of view, things are right-sized to the extent that he's happy, and then he sort of starts um, allowing things through, or at least um, starts having a more constructive attitude and dialogue with some of the major issues that we have? 
Well, the litigation might help. I mean, it's who wins the um, the, law, the lawyers, right? And and the legals. But so first thing, first thing I want to point about Mr. Gensler, I was, this has been there, done that with him for me. I was at S and P running commodity indices when he took over the CFTC, which completely flipped from very proactive to being pushed against commodity indices. Now, people at firms that like Goldman Sachs and and the commodity providers, they were not very happy with him. Right, all the above. They got over that and they work with them. It's fine. So the key thing I've heard from others, which I don't know is true, is he's a bit of an authoritarian complex, which is bad because my fear is like happens with people like that is you have to decide, okay, I'm making decisions here that are going to impact the future. And do I want to go down in history as Alexander Hamilton, or example like that, or Aaron Burr? And boom, that's kind of my warning if you want to do that. But the law will win and and, and money, money, and in this country, capitalism will always prevail because it usually does. I mean, if it, unless that's changed, then that's, you know, I don't know about other countries, but in this country, that's just what runs things. That's the motivation for all of us to really come here. So I'm, I'm kind of macro on that, and I think um, it's in a bad phase, but that's the key thing about that one person. But here, I'll end with this, a positive note. He did... Um, as a head of SEC approved the first Bitcoin ETF that tracks futures, admitted. But the key thing I pointed out about that is that has helped so much create the cash and carry arbitrage in that trade. I mean, just seeing what's happening. And this is what I like to point out last year. When I was bearish commodities, I point out there was one key issue why all the open interest in commodity futures was declining. That doesn't happen in bull markets because of interest is climbing. It's been showing profound, but there's one major futures market on the planet that has definable increasing interest in open interest, and that's Bitcoin futures trade on the CME. Yes, it's old guard, it's institutional, it's stodgy, but it's part of getting into the mainstream. It's the baby step that I think he has to take with, think about it, we're replacing some of the pretty significant money makers and banks and financial institutions with with stuff that's that's decentralized. I mean, my son created a node. I mean, he couldn't do that in the past. It just so th I think I have to give him credit for that. Now, here's one of the key things that Bitto is starting to outperform Bitcoin for a while because futures were in backwardation. Now they're back towards Contango, but it's really fresh. It's really compressing all the ARB and the widespreads and creating much more of a, an adult market in the space. Uh, and that's more the for the traders and hedge funds, but it should be, hopefully be the on-ramp for proper investments. And until we get ETFs, we're yeah. So, but it's still it's just going to be a matter of time. And I, I can that time keeps dangling a little further when we get issues that. Well, remember what's happened. This remember what's remember what's happened. The tide's gone out. We found it's still going out. We find out who's not wearing clothes, and we found out that yes. Putting, um, having young, untrained fiduciaries trying to act like fiduciaries is not a good idea. Yeah, I think diving into a subject that is near and dear to our hearts, which is the CME Bitcoin uh, futures, and we've seen how this uh, maturization of the uh, of these contracts has really helped. I think the market structure for Bitcoin, and now you do have you know an alternative where until you get the spot approval, you know with with a Bitcoin ETF, there is an alternative where you have an on-ramp to track the price of Bitcoin at a much tighter range than you would find in a closed-end trust type structure, which has these hurdles you know, that you see with the redemption process, which creates these big discounts basically and kind of ruins the relationship and causes tracking error. So uh, I think you know, Mike, Mike, you you definitely hit the nail on the head there where you, you saw how Beto kind of impacted that market. 
and it, it's become more of an adult market structure. And so I, I think, you know, until we do get that, that spot ETF approval, institutions do have an alternative with a rolling futures type strategy that typically, you know, should be in, you know, uh, uh, within a stone's throw away from a spot Bitcoin uh, reference rate like our CME BRR index. Stone throw, I think, is a good description because it was one of those things I heard a couple of years, even before it was launched. Oh, the spreads are too wide and it's too nascent. And like, that's just what happens. And being from a futures background, I mean, I started in the pits in the 80s. That's what happens with nascent futures. And once you get more participants, just like any market, it all gets arbed out. That's the process we're in right now. And the key thing, I like you mentioned with Bitto, now there's just, I mean, when I have prominent hedge fund people call me up and say, hey, Mike, what do you think about the GBTC maybe buying that and shorting futures a Bitto or Bitto options against it? I, I mean, I can't give it a view, but I can say, well, I think GBT is pretty low. And, you know, I just point out stuff I used to do. But when you have the people, it's just the questions. And I get the questions. That to me, when I get the, I got some of those questions last year. And that to me meant, okay, the big money is coming in. It's hot money. People might call it institution, but it's smart money. And now it has to go to more of the long-term buy and hold investors. It's just part of that process of getting there. Sure, sure. Now, um, Mike, um, from a you know tradfi uh, perspective about cryptocurrencies, you've given us some amazingly kind words about you know our sort of the way we do our communications, how we sort of talk about the subject matter, how we address it to to sort of institutions and institutional participants. But what is the essential, the essential tools, the essential hooks? that you can begin to get this message across? Well, for people like me, who are lazy leader, readers, I mean, I've got all these degrees, but reading is kind of a pain, but who love to just listen and act like and, and passively learn, what you're doing to me is ideal. It's just been a revolution where I can put in a little, a little earpiece in my ear like this, ride around, walk around, commute, go for bike rides, work out everything, and listen to something that's making me more educated, more informed, and smarter is to me the key thing. It's the difference that you see in more of the popular broadcasting TVs. Now, Bloomberg is one of them where you have to have an anchor that they ask me all the time, why is it moving this and that way? And like a lot of times they'll ask me, I don't care why it's moving today. I care about the macro and they, they don't like that answer. But what you guys are doing now to me is, to me, this is part of what I think don't think people have realized. I mean, 10 years ago, I couldn't do that. I mean, it was hard to get that information. You had to read. You couldn't really listen. It had to have headphones. It was inconvenient. But to be able to click on a podcast like yours and decide, okay, I want to read what they have, listen to what they have to say in my passive time, that to me is what's happening. That's why um, this, this transfer, this Education process that's becoming through technology is just going exponential. Yeah, it's, I think my so I think that was from my Family Guy or something. But when I my Scottish friend in the office said education, I'm like cool, then I can say it because I'm just an American. You know, like I look at you, can you speak English? I talk American. That's brilliant. Hey, hey, Gabe. Um, we are getting pretty close to that point. But um, if you've got anything else you want to ask, or Mike, if you anything else that we didn't ask you about that you want to add. On my end, I just want to thank you. I think it's been a really great conversation. And, you know, in the future, we look to maybe have you back one day once we once we get clarity on the macro front. It's always changing. Um, we saw how quickly uh, a couple inflation reports or flag meeting can just really uh, change change the narrative. So um, it, was a real, it was a real pleasure having you, Mike. And uh, we look forward to uh, following more of your research. Well, thank you for having me. One thing about those last two inflation reports, they inspired me to publish. 
um, the difference with retail sales and inflation is negative, and that's only happened a few times in history, and every time there's been recession. Good point. Absolutely amazing takeaway for people to have. I will uh, also thank you, Mike, for joining us for the latest episode of Digital Assets. It's been an amazing conversation. Do come back sometime soon. Thank you, Gabe, for joining us again. And uh, you guys listening in, uh, it's been a pleasure as well. We'll see you next time for another episode of CFB Talks Digital Assets.